Uh, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke. If you weren't, most of you obviously weren't in the early service, and I don't even know why Mark brought it back up, Pastor Mark, but he made the observation that he might get him a pair of skinny jeans. And uh, I just made the observation that last week the pastor preached on the only sin that would not be forgiven would be the sin of rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. But when Mark said he was going to get some skinny jeans, you know, just I had this image in my mind that I thought, well, now there's two unpardonable sins. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, uh, hallelujah. Praise God in the sanctuary. Praise Him in the mighty heavens. Praise Him for His powerful acts. Praise Him for His abundant greatness. Praise Him with trumpet blast. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with flute and strings. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that breathes let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Now, Luke chapter 19 is where Jesus is heading to Jerusalem for the last time. In the past, whenever he's done a miracle or he's done something extraordinary, uh, the natural response was people wanted to talk about it. People wanted to praise him. And Jesus had always kind of told them to be quiet and uh, just to let God work. But in this particular instance, and in one other instance where the children begin to praise Jesus in the temple, uh, something happens that I think is, you know, rather extraordinary. And it's a statement that uh, as a guy who grew up in church, I wasn't a Christian, uh, where worship was, I guess, best described as a dead, boring experience. I mean, not trying to be critical. I wasn't a follower of Christ, and so anything, whether it was contemporary or no to him, uh, wouldn't have had any particular influence on me because I wasn't a follower. Or I wasn't passionate. I had plenty of gods in my life. As a young man, it just wasn't the God who created everything. So, uh, you know, this kind of instance is rather extraordinary what Jesus has to say. So beginning in verse 36, the text says this. As he was going along, they were spreading their robes on the road. And now as he came near the path of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully. Now, I'm just going to be honest, and you know, I'm not trying to be critical, but the large church that I grew up in, if anybody had gotten joyous in the service, they would have been escorted out of the service very quickly. So these folks begin to, joy, to praise God joyfully with a loud voice. For all the miracles they'd seen, they had experienced so much of God in such a different way than that they'd ever experienced before by the means of religion in their generation, that their lives were being transformed. And it just seemed that as we saw in Psalms 150 in the Old Testament, that spontaneous praise was like breathing from those who experienced and knew and tasted the reality of what God was doing in their generation. So God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. A very interesting statement because at the birth of Jesus, 
we see the opposite of that proclamation. It says, peace on earth and goodwill to man. So something's happening here where these Old Testament Jews that are in this case very familiar with the wrath and the judgment of God are seeing a side of God that perhaps the religious leaders never allowed them to see before. They're seeing grace and mercy especially expressed towards those in their culture and their society that would have been considered outcasts or sinners or the least of the worthy. And so now what they're essentially saying is peace in heaven, that something even before the cross, even before the resurrection where Jesus is headed, they're understanding that the Messiah, that Jesus brings a different dimension, a different understanding and that now there is the reality that man can be at peace with a holy God. See, that's one of the greatest dilemmas that the world has ever really uh, encountered. If God is just, and if he's God, he must be just, and he must judge all sin, all rebellion against him. And the Bible is very clear that all of us have sinned. So if the justice of God is something that is necessary, then how do we approach him other than by being perfect people, and if any of us are honest, the reality is that when we look into a mirror and we're honest with ourselves, none of us even come close to that. And so these Old Testament Jews, especially those at the margin of their culture and their society, are beginning to understand that God has made a way for a man to have a relationship with a just God through his mercy. And so the result is they're now declaring peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. But here's the religious people. And this really bothers me. It bothers me as a leader in the church, as a servant of the church. But it was the very Pharisees, it was the very men of God who should have done all that they could to set their people at liberty and to know God in a rightful way that come to Jesus and say, listen, you need to rebuke their praise. You need to rebuke their worship. And then that just incredible statement in verse 40 to me is, and he answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Now that's, that's a little troubling for me, is that the reality that so many of us struggle with a comprehension of and a proper application of what it means to worship God in spirit and truth. Uh, all of us come from different backgrounds. Uh, I would say that uh, as a pastor, uh, I can remember, you know, growing up where worship was singing three songs and uh, sitting down, you know, standing up and sitting down. We, and I'm not, I'm not saying anything negative about the church. This was just my experience. And you've got to remember, I I wasn't a believer at the time that I went to this church all of my growing up in teenage years, but uh, we were very formal. People were in their coat and ties. That was just kind of the generation that I grew up in and when you went to church. Now, it wasn't the way we were living outside of the church, but kind of the church was still an extension of a culture maybe that was, you know, more prevalent in the past. And so we'd go to church and uh, we'd start, you know, right at 11 o'clock and the choir would come out and... Uh, we, had a, we had the best pipe organ in town, uh, a couple of hundred thousand dollars worth of pipe organ, which was a lot of money in that time. And it was always, you know, kind of a serious, somber type uh, service. And uh, at uh, about a minute till 11 or something like that, 
uh, the organist would hit uh, chimes, or I, I don't know how to describe them, but there's real somber, like the tolling of a bell, and we had this staff, and you might remember this as if you're as old as I am. I used to call them the king chairs, where, you know, the pastors would come out and sit up in front of her. I've always been uncomfortable with that because, you know, I'm always afraid I left my zipper down or something, but I, I couldn't do that. But they would walk out, and it would be 12 bells, and they would all be in position in front of their chairs at bell number 10. I was like clockwork. I mean, it was like, it was like good strategy. It was like an army. And, uh, you know, at, at the 12th, they, they would sit down. And my, my memory is, is that, you know, we would, go, we would go through this service because we called it a church service. And as a little boy, the only other thing I found in our community that was called a service was a, remember, what, 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 what's, what is something else that we call, we have church services and we have funeral services. And I wasn't all that bright, but I did notice that the funeral services were a little bit more lively <laughs> on the most part than the church services that I went to. And in one of my memories, my father I wasn't a believer at that time. He was a, a World War II generation, a pilot, an engineer on a B-17, and, but he was a moral man. And uh, so it was right to go to church. And so I can, you know, my mother was a believer. My father later on in his life after several Massive heart attacks. He met God, and God transformed his life. And I was privileged to see that transformation in his life. But one of my memories as a little boy is watching my dad, my father, you know, never sing a word, and then sit down during the sermon. The best part about the sermon is you could catch up if you stayed up late, late on Saturday night, because you could just take a little nap, a little thirty-minute snooze, and you know that was kind of my church experience. And and then again. Uh, it was just our culture. I was growing up with Led Zeppelin and ZZ Top and Leonard Skinner. And, you know, we'd go to church, and our church was, uh, I don't know how to describe it, very operatic. Sometimes we'd even sing in Latin. It was a university church. And so a lot of people with a lot of education, a lot of high degrees went to that church. But, you know, it just it didn't connect with me, and, and I was lost. And so I, I guess it mean, makes sense that... The thing, as I grew older, one of the things that I hated more than anything else was on Sunday morning having to go to church because I just found it to be so disconnected from anything that I was experiencing in life. Again, I wasn't a believer, so that's just the way it was. Growing up, uh, I had a tyrannical parents. They expected children to do chores, and I know that, you know, it's kind of a hard thing in this generation. Uh, and uh, we didn't even get an allowance for the chores that we did. I mean, abusive. I would have taken them to court if they were still. But anyway, uh, you know, my job, I, you know, when I was a little boy, I wanted to cut the grass, but that didn't last too long. I mean, you know, you want to get out to your daddy and cut the grass, but after a while, your daddy sits up drinking iced tea watching you cut the grass, and it's not so much fun any longer. So, you know, cut the grass, and I had to uh, wash the dishes, and it just, you know, I had some chores around the house. But as I grew... And uh, began to play football and our really good football team. And that became really an idol in my life, a force in my life. You know, somewhere around 15, 16 years of age, I just found it an incredible masculine insult that my mother thought it was my job to wash the dishes as a 16-year-old guy. And I can remember the, the battles that being, began to go on between my mother and I about washing the dishes. And if I heard it once, I heard it a thousand times. If you want to eat, you're going to wash the dishes. 
And so, you know, I kind of weighed the consequences, and I did like food at that time. And so, you know, I'd grumble and I'd complain. But, you know, coming, coming out of those growing up years, you know, listening to church music, going through the church service, uh, cutting the yard, washing the cars was another one, but especially washing the dishes was something, you know, that I just hated. I just really hated it. Well, I went away to the university, and uh, long story short, I began to be confronted by my sinfulness. I began to see people's lives being uh, dramatically, powerfully transformed by coming to faith in Christ. So, you know, we were going to live the party, and uh, some of these guys that we were partying with, because I was used to the party and then going to church on Sunday. There was no disparity for living a life far away from God and, you know, attending a religious service on Sunday. But all of a sudden, some of my friends and some guys and gals that are beginning to meet, they were coming to faith, and, and their lives were being turned upside down, and they were being transformed and becoming authentic and genuine and people filled with love. And I was watching, you know, that transformation. And long story short is, I uh, came to a place where I, God was seeking me, and I recognized that I was a sinner, and I needed a Savior, and so I gave my life to Christ. And then, then it happened. Something really strange happened. The very thing that I found so boring, the very things that I had no interest in, and one of them would have been worship, all of a sudden they just began to happen. All of a sudden I found that my heart was being transformed. And, and this, is, this is the best way that I've ever found to explain. I don't know if it's any good or not. But at that same time, I had fallen in love uh, with a young lady by the name of Heather, Heather McCracken. And she was a, well, you know, she was a looker. And I, I, you know, I was attracted to her and uh, we, you know, we kind of were friends and then we started, we started going out and it was, a, again, it was a different generation and sometimes we would come home and her parents would sponsor refugees from different areas of the world and one of the things that she learned was how to become a gourmet cook from some of these people that were coming like from China, escaping from communism and so she, the family would host them and help them find homes and jobs and all that type of thing. And so uh, kind of the payback was they taught Johnny how to cook some of their national foods. And when she cooked, she was like a mad scientist in the kitchen. And I, don't, I can't remember here, Heather's here somewhere, but maybe five-course, three-course, four-course meals, honey, something like that. And she, all the family, so we would come home from college and biblically speaking, Johnny would, that was her mother, she would kill the fatted calf. <laughs> and uh, she would really, or we, we, as we say in Alabama, she'd put on the dog. I mean, it's hard to explain. We'd really eat a feast, and it, it would last all night long. But you can imagine the consequences of this masterpiece of what the kitchen would look like. Now, interestingly enough, it looked like an atomic blast. And Heather's job was to wash the dishes. And so many times... She would go into the kitchen and wash the dishes. And, and when we were home, and that time when we would come home, one of the things that was made very abundantly clear to me is that I was not allowed physically to touch Heather in front of her parents. So if I reached over and I put my arm around her at the dinner table or something like that, Heather's father had these big horn-rimmed glasses, and they would, all of a sudden, they would come down on his nose like that, and he would just, I'd be talking, have my hand on Heather, and he, I, all of a sudden, I'd notice he'd just be looking at me. 
And uh, it, was the, it was the look of death. It was like, what he was saying is, get your hand off my daughter. But anyway, we would go in later to wash the dishes. And so Heather would have her elbows and my hands. We would be all the way up to our elbows in hot, soapy water. And I could touch her all I wanted to. And I could stand there and smell her. And you got to be old. You got to be old. But I could stand there and smell her herbal essence hair. And it was wonderful. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, anytime we went home, more than anything else, even the food, what I looked forward to more than anything else was washing the dishes. <laughs> so what changed? I fell in love. What changed? What changes for a person? What does the Bible assume? That if you are a follower of God, if you understand who God is, if you have a relationship with God, if you have fallen in love with God because he loved you first, that if you have breath in your lungs, then the most natural response in the world is going to be biblical worship. Well, I spent most of my life, not even as a pastor, understanding what biblical worship is. And I just kind of want to go over that so we can kind of leave here this morning encouraging one another to be worshipers because of the ultimate result of what happens in our lives when we become worshipers. The first point is this, is worship is a universal experience. All people, all of people around the world worship something or someone. Now, most people, Heather and I have had the opportunity to go around the world and share the gospel with people, and almost all peoples are deists. They believe in some form of God or some multiplicity of deities, most of them angry, most of them vengeful, but they, they worship a God and they give sacrifices to God. But when you get into materialistic countries like Europe or the United States, most of the people don't worship someone, but they worship something. I mean, we have passions, right? And worship is usually reserved for something that is of utmost importance to us. For some people, for many people in America, it's kind of hedonism. It's pleasure, uh, especially when you're younger. I mean, you're just kind of moving from one pleasurable experience to another. Now, that worship will come back to bite you. That false idol will destroy your life eventually. But a lot of us have been there where we lived our lives for whatever pleasure we could get out of life, whether it's drinking, sex, or drugs. That was part of our kind of testimony, part of our history. That became our God. For others, it's materialism. I mean, our country is awash in materialism. We sell the poison to our children that if you get an education and get a good job and get a big house and drive a nice car, you're going to be happy. But the reality is that's a lie. doesn't satisfy. But yet we continue as a culture to pound this into the hearts and the minds of our children. Well, that's not where a person who's created for God finds ultimate joy. And so, so many people in America spend all their lives. If you ever want to kind of study somebody who exemplifies that, go back and read the life of Howard Hughes, probably one of the wealthiest men in history who died insane because basically he found nothing at the end of his pursuit of wealth. And so... For some, it's little things. I mean, or maybe big things like some people worship their family. I mean, some mothers worship their children. I mean, that, that's one that will go up and leave you. But some of us 
you know, we worship our golf or we worship our football or we have these little idols in our life of our passions that take preeminence over anything else in our life. And so worship is an experience that everyone experiences to some degree. And so you're a worshiper. It's just a matter of what you worship. Let me kind of share with you what worship isn't before I kind of describe what it is. Number one is worship isn't a service. I mean, God doesn't expect us to come here and get our worship act on. Uh, not that we cannot, we can worship in a service, but a service within itself doesn't necessarily mean that worship takes place. When we were on vacation one year, Heather and I went to a large mega church where a friend of mine was pastor, and uh, they were known for their worship. If you talk to their members, uh, they talk to you about how great their worship is. And so, you know, I'm, I, my, my background is Baptist, and so I, my hands don't move a lot, occasionally. And so their praise and worship team was pretty awesome. And so they were leading us on that Sunday, and we, were, we didn't sit in the back much, but it's kind of cool sitting in the back. You can just kind of sit there and watch everybody else, what they're doing. But the worship was really good, and, you know, I felt my Baptist hand begin to twitch. And uh, thinking, you know, I better be careful this thing. You know, I might do something here. And I might, you know, because my heart was being drawn into this love relationship with God through the worship. But thank God I looked around and there were 3,000 other people and not one of them was singing a lick of the song. And yet that church was known for worship. Folks, listen. Number two is this. Worship is not a performance. It's not a performance. Unfortunately, in the church of Jesus Christ in America today, we often judge the worship in the church by whether or not the praise team got it on or the choir got it down on Sunday morning. And that is not biblical worship. We can corporately worship together. We can individually worship together. But it's not a performance. And now that can lead us to worship. But the reality is it's kind of something like this. Worship in a church is dynamic simply because we are worshipers during the week and what we bring together on Sunday morning is just an expression of who we are as a people on Monday. Somebody expressed it this way. It's kind of like filling a glass half full. And, uh, you know, if, if Mike, our worship leader, really, he wants us to worship, he's got to really shake that glass because it's half full. And if he shakes it really hard, if the set is just right and the music is good and it kind of resonates with us, he might get a little of that water, whatever is in the glass, to slosh out. But on the other hand, you've filled up a glass before, before it does what they call brimming. You know, it kind of exceeds the top of the glass. And the reality is, if you want that to overflow, all you have to do is just kind of thump it. And it comes out because it's already there. And so as I travel around the United States, the, the churches that I'm in that express the best of biblical worship, it's not because their worship team is the best, and it's not because the performance is the best. It's simply because the people in that church over the years have learned to practice what it means to worship God in spirit and truth. Well, so worship isn't a performance. It's not a service. And thirdly, it's not a preference. Uh, sometimes people will say something like, well, I, I joined this church for the worship. But since we're so divorced from the reality of what biblical worship is, what they usually mean is they sing the type of music I like to sing, right? I mean, we all have a preference. You can go in churches all over Asheville, and you can find almost every genre 
of Christian service or church worship music that you might want. And it's not for us to judge somebody because they enjoy or have a different preference. They can, you can worship to any style of music. The only style of music I've never heard before, and we're going to work on Mike in regards to this, is Christian polka. Have you ever heard any? He's, he's got Wisconsin roots. And so I thought if anybody, a cheesehead, could bring us some Christian polka to learn how to enjoy that expression. But there's a lot of folks who will actually visit churches and make a decision based on whether or not that church sings exclusively their preference of music. Well, that's not biblical worship. And the fourth thing, the last thing is worship is not man-centered. It's always God-centered. It really, one of the things that really grieves my heart is to sometimes go into a church and all the experience is about my experience and it's about me. And all the songs are about me. But folks, you don't want to sing about me. We need to sing about God because he's glorious and I'm not. He's everlasting, I'm not. He's faithful and I'm not. We need to be singing songs that truthfully reflect the glory of God. So worship is never man-centered. If it's biblical, it's always God-centered. There's two aspects of worship that Jesus mentioned when he was speaking to the Samaritan woman and he said, uh, there'll come a day when you'll worship me in spirit and truth. And this is what Jesus was saying because that's a little S spirit, not a big S spirit. It's not the big S of the Holy Spirit. And not that we shouldn't worship in the spirit. He's talking about our emotions, who we are spiritually. And what he's saying is essentially there are two elements of worship. One is that we should feel uh, what we're worshiping. But the other is truth. We should think about what we're worshiping. Now, what I've learned about myself is, is many times when it comes to biblical worship, I don't feel anything. You ever have a Sunday morning? When you come to church on Sunday morning and you just, you're just, it's just, you're emotionally flat. And sometimes you can walk away and say, well, the music just didn't do it for me. But there are other times you can, you can walk away and you can say, well, it wasn't really the music. It was, you know, it was just me. I got things going on and I've got a lot of conflict going on. I've got a lot of things going on in my mind. And what I've learned is this, is when I center my mind and I discipline myself to think about the glories and mercies and kindness and blessings of God, then my heart will eventually follow the truth. So truth should always guide us in our expressions of worship. Here's a little statement that I wrote down last night. Uh, Thoughtless emotional frenzy in the church no more honors God than heartless dead worship. Either one is an offense to God. So God calls us to worship with our emotions, and he calls us to worship with our intellect, thinking about it. So there are five words in Scripture that kind of define the parameters of worship. They're pretty broad, and I want to spend a lot of time. We could do a great word study, but I just wanted to bring those up so that you could understand it from a biblical perspective. Anos is the first, Matthew 21, 16. And essentially what this word means is it's a story that expresses praise or condemnation. It's a, it's a story that we talk about God and his goodness and what he's done on our behalf. And then there's epianos, which epi means to put on top of. And what God is saying is simply this. He's saying there are a lot of things that are honorable in life. There are a lot of things that are good. Now, you and I, can, we can go and leave this place, and we can have, take our mothers and our wives out for a good Mother's Day meal. 
uh, we get, we've got three little granddaughters with us, so, so my beloved is going to get steak and shake. So that's all they'll eat. That's where we're going. Uh, but you, we can say this is a wonderful meal. We can, we can uh, play a go- game of golf. I don't play golf, but we can say, hey, I, I shot whatever, and that was a great game. We can look at a sunset and say that's a, that's a beautiful sunset. I can look at my wife and I can say, but honey, you look beautiful this morning. Those things are all worthy of praise. But what the Bible is saying is that above all those things, that it should be as natural as breathing. In fact, it is one of the key indicators of whether or not you and I are a child of God. If spontaneous, internal, thoughtful, heartfelt worship is coming out of our hearts and our minds and our lips. Another is lateria, uh, which is a very interesting word. It's often translated service. And what it simply means is, is that all of life is worship. So you kind of think about it this way. If somebody cuts you off on the freeway, the first thing that comes into your mind is worship. <laughs> when somebody irritates you, or somebody offends you, or you're having a bad day, the way that you respond is worship. And so this morning, uh, we've got our three little granddaughters. One of them's two years of age. And uh, her parents, this is the first time her parents have gone on a cruise for their 15th wedding anniversary. It's the first time she's spent a lot of time with anybody else. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, she comes and uh, she gets me up. And uh, so from 2 o'clock in the morning, I spend my time with her. She's whiny and kicking me in the back, and, you know, I'm trying to get some sleep. But, you, you know, it's, 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 it's Mother's Day. And so when my wife gets up, because I was trying to protect her, but she didn't get any sleep, you know, I was thinking about, you know what, you've got to preach this, and the way you treat your wife on Mother's Day when you've had no sleep, because what you really want to do is just shoot somebody. <laughs> the way you treat your wife is worship. The way I love my wife is worship. The way you love your husband is worship. The way we love our children either honors God or it dishonors God. The way we speak and relate to our neighbors is worship. The way that I go to school and I perform my duties and my tasks is worship. What the Bible is saying is it's just not these collective times when you and I come together that are biblical worship, but all of our lives are to be lived as an offering to the king who redeems us. The next one I love is proskuneo. It means, it's two words put together. It means to go towards and to kiss. But it's got a particular image of, that I experienced last night. So yesterday, yesterday we really, the Dillons really stepped up and out. And we took the grandkids to Waffle House. Uh, that's where they wanted to go. They wanted to go to Waffle House. So, you know, we just sugared them up and uh, took them out and uh, put them in the park and ran around the park. And we just were trying to have, we call it Graham Camp when they come for a long time. So we just want them to have a good time when they're with Graham and Papa. And so the little two-year-old, we got back home and I was washing the dishes. And all of a sudden I felt these chubby little arms right around my leg right there. And all of a sudden she starts kissing me. And, and I said, hey, for Grace, what are you doing? And she said, thank you, Papa. I don't know what she was doing. All she knows is that her papa 
who for her is big and strong, and she gets on my back, and I twirl her around, and she knows that she's the apple of my eye, and that I'd do anything for her. And this is the picture, biblically, is that sometimes you and I are so overwhelmed with life, we don't even know what God is doing, but we believe and we trust that He's our Papa, and so we trust in Him, we love on Him, we have a fellowship with Him, even when life seems to be something that we don't particularly understand at the moment. And so, proskuneo is just drawing close to God into intimacy, and then the last is shebonia, which is simply to treasure or adore God above everything else. Let me give you very quickly three or four or five expressions of worship. Number one is thanksgiving. The Bible tells us to enter his courts with thanksgiving. I've noticed this about myself. When I'm down and when I'm discouraged, like the old hymn says, count your blessings one by one. When I physically, mentally force myself to be thankful, eventually my heart begins to reflect the truth that my mind is reflecting. So if you're struggling with discouragement, interestingly enough, your solution as a Christian is worship. When you focus on the goodness and the glory of God and the fact that God is in control when it seems like everything in your life is out of control, thanksgiving is one of the solutions to the problems. The second is celebration. Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 says rejoice. Now I grew up in a culture where it's not anything for 110,000 people uh, to gather together and, and to celebrate two football teams playing on the field. And I can remember, you know, the contrast of just the electricity of somebody running a touchdown, and all of a sudden, you know, half of the stadium, they leap to their feet, and everybody is kind of high-fiving one another, and they're celebrating. And then going to a local church where they're talking about a God who raises the dead, and they sit in their chairs. Disconnect. We can celebrate our favorite sports team, but when we sing about, we talk about, and we rejoice in what God has done, there's very often no expression whatsoever in regards to rejoicing. You know, Easter, I love Easter because I've been in churches that were essentially dead all year, but for some reason on Easter, people come willing and ready to celebrate. Christ is risen. He's no longer in the grave. And because of the fact that he's risen, you and I have now been given this promise that this life is not all that there is, but there's everlasting life. So thanksgiving, celebration, prayer, listening to God, speaking to God is part of worship. Reflection, the Lord's Supper is very much something that's reflective, to reflect on God's truth. I can remember the first time uh, after, or the first time I remember that I took the Lord's Supper after Heather and I were married, uh, uh, we had a fight on Saturday night. I don't know if you guys ever that ever happened right before church. But Saturday night, we just had one of those, you know, been married a couple of years, had a knockdown, drag out. And uh, so we go to church, and the pastor didn't tell anybody, today we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so he gets up and he talks about now, if you, if you drink of this glass and you eat this cracker and you have unconfessed sin in your life, if you've got something between you and somebody else, you're probably going to die before you get to that back door. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, uh, this isn't good. And, and so, you know, for a moment, he gave us time to reflect. Just quietness. Be still and know that I'm God. 
You know, and in that moment, I can remember, you know, going to bed, angry at my wife and thinking, you know what? She's not going to win this one. Uh-uh, no way. I'm going to win. I'm gonna, whatever it takes. If it takes weeks, I won't eat any meals. If I have to starve, I mean, I'm going to go to the wall over this one. I don't even remember what it was now, but, you know, I was going to win this battle. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm reflecting, and the Holy Spirit is present in my life. And he's saying, really, Joe? I went to the cross, and I, I died for your sins when you were rebellious and you were living a life far from me and you cannot even forgive your wife for such a little thing. And so at the end of the period of reflection, I just reached over and grabbed her hand and said, I'm sorry. And was able to take freely the Lord's Supper. Reflection can be an incredible time of worship. And then the last is one I'll just call submission, which is probably the highest form of worship. And we see the best example in Job chapter 13, verse 15 through 18, where Job had lost everything. He'd lost his children. He'd lost his family. He'd lost his wealth. The Bible tells us that he was sitting somewhere in kind of a, a trash pile, and he had pottery shards by which he was kind of scraping off uh, the bowls that were on his body. And the result of this, in the midst of his desperation, Joel looked up to heaven and he said, even if he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Yet will I worship God, the God of creation and glory. Now folks, there are going to come times in our life where you and I have kind of been taught, you know, go with the feeling. Follow your heart. That's That's poison. That's poison. Don't go with your heart. Your heart will deceive you. There's something about sitting in that place of darkness when you cannot comprehend why God would allow to happen what's happened and to lift your arms and to lift your spirit and say, God, I do not understand why this is going on in my life, but you are the king and the sovereign king, and no matter what happens in my life, my trust and my faith will be in you. So that's an expression of worship that we see expressed in moments and times in the Bible. Let me just give you some reasons for worship. One is because worship leads to our transformation. This is what I have experienced through learning biblical worship. When I worship God, He exchanges my need for His provision. God exchanges my fear for His confidence. My loneliness for his presence. When I worship God, he exchanges my arrogance for his humility. When I worship God, he exchanges my anxiety and my worries for his peace. When I worship God, he exchanges my sorrow for his joy, my sin and shame for his freedom and for his forgiveness. Worship is incredibly powerful. I met a man a few years ago who was a Romanian pastor who was told by the KGB that if he continued to preach the gospel, he would be imprisoned and eventually executed. So he had a dilemma whether or not to continue to do it, and he chose to honor God, and they began to pick him up after he'd preach and take him somewhere out into the country and torture him, and uh, it became worse and worse with the threats of imprisonment. And finally, as he refused to quit preaching, he was taken and imprisoned in a gulag where he was tortured uh, in an unmerciful way. So the question was, you know, how, how did you survive? You know, how did you have the courage to survive? 
And his answer was that every morning as the sun would come up, he had a song and he would lift his hands as the song would come up in his cell and he would begin to worship God. God is his source. God is his strength. God is his peace. God is his provision. And what happened is that the soldiers and the uh, security guys and the prisoners would throw their urine and their feces and they would mock him as he worshiped in the morning. Every morning this happened, and yet every morning as the sun would come up, this man of God would stand in his cell and he would worship God. This went on for a period of almost two years. And finally the week came where the guards finally told him, he said, as Friday you will be carried out and executed. And so the prisoners began to discuss, well, you know, what will he do now? Now that his life is coming to an end. And so on Tuesday morning after the announcement, as the sun came up, this Romanian pastor got up and he lifted his hands and he began to worship God. And so on Tuesday, he lifted his hands and he worshiped God. On Wednesday, he worshiped God. On Thursday, he worshiped God. And so on Friday, they brought all the prisoners out to watch this gentleman's execution. And as he was being brought out of the cell, all of a sudden, the prisoners all began to sing the song. This condemned man to die had sung every morning. And as they marched him to that place of execution, the prisoners with their hands upstretched worshipped. The security chief at this site to be seen asked the man, who are you? And his response is, I am a child of the king. The security guard took him by his elbow, walked him to the gate, opened the door, and set him free. He's preaching the gospel to this day. And that man would tell you that the only thing that sustained him in all those years of desperation and all those years of darkness was the power of worshiping God. So our God and worship is transformational. Well, there's not only is that it's transformational for us, but we can talk about His worth, that His character. He's good. He's lovely. He's faithful. He's everlasting. He's merciful to us. But He's also the God of creation. All that we see in the world. Why do the birds sing instead of croak? Why is the sky blue instead of just gray all the time? Why are the trees green? Why is everything around us like an artist's canvas. It is because the God of creation has created everything for your pleasure. So we worship God because He's worthy in His character, His creation, and then lastly because of His gifts. The reality is that according to Scripture, all of us have sinned and deserve the judgment of a holy God. But when yet I was still a sinner, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for me. I will stand before a holy God and I will be forgiven by the blood of the cross of the King. And so I worship God because He's worthy for all that He's done for me. Now this is the question that I kind of want to leave us with today. What idols... What idols in your life are hindering you for worship? If the Bible says that it should be as natural as breathing, that his children should worship him, what is that an indicator of in your life? Do you struggle? 
My question is, have you ever fallen in love? Have you ever met Jesus? Have you ever met the God who sent his son and sacrificed him on the cross of Calvary? Because if there's some other idol in your life, if you truly fall in love with the king of glory, then that idol must be dethroned and take its proper place. So what are the idols that perhaps you worship? One of the most telling passages in all the Old Testament is 2 Chronicles chapter verse 22 where the king and the people are confronted by an enemy that's too strong for them. And so they gather together in what was called a solemn assembly and they begin to cry out to God and they say, God, it's too much, it's too much. After this sermon, this morning, a message, a young woman came up to me and was sharing with me a prayer request. And through her tears, essentially what she said is, it's too much. It's too much. I'm just not sure I can go forward. It's just too much. Now the interesting thing is God didn't tell the people of Israel to get a, a good military strategy. He didn't tell them to tune up their weapons. What he said is take your choir and send your people out before the enemy and begin to worship me. And when you worship me, your enemies will be destroyed and be scattered. Now, if that's biblical truth, then the corresponding truth is this. Is at our praise, the enemy flees and the enemy until, intends to kill our worship. So let me just ask you the question. What is it that keeps you from the biblical expressions of worshiping God? And you know, I'm not even really concerned about how we worship Him here on Sundays. I think God would be much more concerned about how we worship Him on Mondays. So church, as we celebrate this Mother's Day, we celebrate this time of family, let's remember that there's a God in heaven who's worthy of the praise of His people. And when you and I learn as an act of the mind and the heart to worship God. Not only does it transform us, but it demonstrates His worth to the world and the people that we live with every day. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this time. I pray that You would take Your Word and Your truth and to help us examine ourselves. What is it that keeps us from the freedom of joyfully worshiping you? Father, whether it's fears, anger, idols. Father, I pray that today would be the day that you would reveal to us that which keeps us from your power and your joy for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.